you for this privilege that's ours to sit under the proclamation and explanation and exhortation of your active and living word which works in us mightily. We'd ask you, O Spirit of God, to uh, use it in our lives for the advancement of your own fame and glory, that you would give clarity of understanding, clarity of communication, and uh, the everyday implications that it's got upon our lives. We ask that uh, you'd be honored in our study of Scripture and that uh, uh, we would be more like Christ through uh, not only understanding these truths but applying them to our lives. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. As we find ourselves back in Ephesians, we are starting a new section today. We're, looking at the, we're starting the second half of Ephesians, beginning in chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, as we look at a worthy walk of unity. Now, often commentators and other students of the Bible emphasize that the first three chapters are doctrinal and the last three chapters are practical. I'd say yes and no. Uh, it seems like this might be a false dichotomy because all doctrine is practical. And we, so when we say that the first half is doctrinal, the second half is, is, is practical, uh, all doctrine is practical, and without doctrine, there'd be nothing to practice. So we need to get that straight in our minds. However, it is clear that the first three chapters emphasize profound doctrine for believers to rejoice in and see that they practice their duties. But for the Apostle Paul, doctrine is doxology. It cannot just be an academic matter, but one that affects our hearts and leads to life change. Clearly, a main theme is the mystery that's now been made known that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, the church, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This mystery is repeated by name throughout the epistle and is expanded upon as well. And equal to the diversity of Jew and Gentile is what characterizes each church today. Everyone comes with various backgrounds before their life before Christ. We talk about our B.C. days before Christ intervened in salvation. Uh, some of you were religious church brats that were not right with God, like myself, and some of you were never, never darkened the door of a church building before you were saved. Some of you come from rich backgrounds and some from poor, some from educated and some from uneducated. Some, the most pro prolific manifestations of sin in your life that you wouldn't even want to share with us in your testimony. And some that were great self-righteous hypocrites that thought they were fine since they were outwardly moral, though inside they'd never been regenerated by the Spirit of God. But many of you have given testimony. We've sat around coffee, and we've uh, listened to testimonies of, of baptism. Many of you are gloriously saved, and you, re you repented of your sin and placed your faith in the perfect sacrifice of Christ alone as your substitute. And so this is the reality of the salvation doctrine fleshed out early on in the book of Ephesians, especially chapter 1. But there's an obvious shift in the focus of Paul for the second half of his epistle to the Ephesians, a marked difference between the doctrine proclaimed on the church's riches in Jesus Christ, chapters 1 through 3, 
and the behavior expected of believers as they appropriate that doctrinal standing in the way that they conduct their lives here on planet earth. That's chapters 4 to 6. And he's going to start fleshing out these gospel responsibility, gospel responses or, or what motivates us to obey these imperatives. Uh, this is gospel ought, if we could uh, coin a, a new phrase. You know, when, when somebody joins an organization, he ob- ob- obligates himself to live and act in accordance with standards of that group. And this isn't just talking about church groups. If you are a citizen of the United States of America, there's, there's incumbent responsibility and obligation to be an involved citizen. You know, get out and vote this fall, even though, well, we won't talk about candidates, but uh, you, you get the gist. Uh, if you're an employee, there are rules and standards of the company that you have to obey. In service clubs, there are obligations. And for an athletic team, you play as the coach orders or you get benched. Human society cannot operate without such obligation. And yes, we will admit that the gospel comes with more than obligation. It, this is just a response of a, of a of new life in Christ that we respond out of obedience and love for Him. But too many Christians are glad to have spiritual security with all the blessings, the honors, and the privileges of being children of God. The next three chapters of Ephesians delineates those those obligations, those requirements of being His children. In other words, how can we live up to the family name of, of, of our new life in Christ? If we were dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, whom He made alive, what does that look like as we practice these gospel graces? This, is not, this, this way of going from doctrinal to practical is not uh, unique to Ephesians. Paul does it throughout his writings in, in Romans 12, we see uh, the doctrinal section, chapters 1 through 12, and then right when he gets into chapters 12 to 15, therefore I urge you, brothers, on the grounds of what I've already uh, uh, dug deep with you on this doctrine, here's how your life responds to that. He does it in Galatians 5.1, Philippians 2.1, 1 Thessalonians 4.1. With the possible exception of Romans no New Testament letter contains a stronger or more exhilarating presentation of theology than Ephesians does. After ending chapter 3 with a doxology last week, Paul now has for us a focus on practical exhortations for daily living as he begins to speak of the believer's walk. That term, peripateo, walk, we'll, we'll see a significance here now in, in his epistle. He uses the term figuratively, as he always does, to refer to the believer's lifestyle, the conduct that characterizes life in Christ. It appears that verse 1 of this new chapter we embark upon is an introduction to at least the next two chapters, as Paul repeats the kind of walk that is worthy of the calling that they'd received. In uh, Chapters, uh, chapter 4, it's a walk of unity and a walk of newness. We won't be to newness in Christ this week. We'll, we'll, we'll get there in a couple of weeks. Then in chapter, chapter 5, he gets to talking about how that this walk is characterized by love and light and wisdom. 
So follow along as I read for us uh, the first half a dozen verses, Ephesians 4, 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, employ you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Notice how he begins this whole section, the very first word, therefore. That word marks a transition from this, this doctrine he's been talking about to duty, from principle to practice, from our position in Christ to our behavior in Christ. And he uses that one word to show a dependence of chapters 4 to 6 on chapters 1 to 3. So as he is giving all these, these commands that come rapid fire, almost like a repeating gun, uh, they're, they're, they just come in rapid fire, all these imperatives come from uh, uh, being informed and they, they find their source in chapters 1 to 3. He's exalted if you recall what we've looked at so far in Ephesians, he's exalted the, the great and marvelous God who, who devised a plan of salvation. We looked at Trinitarian redemption, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and their various roles in it. And at the heart of that plan is Christ. It is Christ through whom God has secured redemption and created a new community that, that's in dynamic relation with the Lord Jesus. They enjoy a new identity. They participate with Christ in resurrection. They have an inheritance and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They are a spiritual temple. You remember that that metaphor that Paul used. And based on that new identity, here's what the church's sanctified walk with God looks like, chapters 4 to 6. So if you wanted to gain a little trajectory for the next few weeks of our our study uh, here in chapter 4, Jot down just a framework of, of, of where we're going today and the, and the, the next few Lord's Days uh, of this month. We're going to be walking in unity. That is verses 1 to 16. We won't exhaust that today. And then uh, verses 17 to 32, which is the end of the chapter, is walking in holiness. So as he instructs us on walking in unity, the basis of that unity is what we'll look at today, verses 1 to 6. And the building of spiritual unity, verses 7 to 16, we'll look at next week. And then as we change the focus and and the focus more onto this walk being a walk of holiness, he's going to talk about the old man and the new man in just a couple of weeks. If we haven't exhausted the thought in your mind yet, he's telling us that doctrinal input must be matched by equal practical output of that doctrine in our lives, beloved. There's no such thing as, uh, you've, hear, you, you've probably heard people say before that the doctrine divides. Uh, well, in a way it does, yeah, it divides uh, truth from error. So yes, it, it is divisive if there is a, a lot of uh, uh, untruths about us. But when you trace doctrine or teaching through the New Testament, you can't live right without right teaching, right truth. Doctrine's duty is to be lived. What you behave, 
uh, how you behave, uh, what you believe determines your behavior. So let me propose to you this morning for our, our short few minutes together in these half a dozen verses, notice three key teachings on unity that express our call. Three key teachings on unity that express our calling. He's going to give us a request, he's going to talk about character, and he's going to wrap it up with an illustration. First of all, that request in verse number one, therefore, in the grounds of all the theology, the great doctrine he's discussed for three chapters now, on, the, on that basis, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Possibly your translation reads, I beseech you. You could even call this point, uh, instead of request, his exhortation. He's bringing apostolic weight and authority to what he's got for the saints at Ephesus. He's encouraging them. He's appealing with them as a prisoner. This is a man who, because of his obedience to Christ, became a prisoner. Yet he was still in vital communion with the, with the risen Christ, writing to the believers there. And as he beseeched them and appealed to them, it's an interesting word that he uses, that, uh, that their walk be characterized as a worthy one. That... Uh, it's related to words for weighing, that word worthy. Literally, that which balances the scales. He's talking about balancing your life out. Living to match one's position in Christ. Being consistent and non-hypocritical. You've probably heard in, in, when we've uh, fellowshiped before in various conversations... We talk about not having a secular and a sacred life because to the believer, everything is sacred. You don't have your church life where you put on your great face and you sing the hymns of the faith and go home and live like the devil. It's inconsistent. There is no home life versus church life. We, we are to behave in a manner in which adopted children of the Heavenly Father could be expected to behave. Believing His teachings, trusting His promises, and obeying His will. Right practice is based on right principle because we got our doctrine straight in chapters 1 through 3. Now we can make sure our, work is com- our walk is coming in conformity and that it's a balanced walk, a worthy walk. He's talking about sincerity and openness and honesty and consistency means to have a worth equal to one's position. Thus, if we are children of the King, to act like it. When we are instructed in Scripture about a workman worthy, there's our word, of his hire, we're speaking of one whose service merits the wages he receives. It's to be commensurate. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes... It is a scale in which the weight on one side always equals the weight on the other. So in this case, the weight of practice equal in the weight of doctrine. You remember how, how James weighs in on this when he talks about uh, being doers of the Word and not hearers only deceiving your own selves in James 1? We can't put all the weight on doctrine. I love doctrine. I love theology. Theology. 
without any practice. You also can't put uh, all your weight on practice with just a little, or if any, on doctrine. Don't be lopsided. Don't be imba- an imbalanced saint. Don't be like the, uh, the, the, the children, uh, children who go to Olympians or Awan or other youth clubs where they're challenged to memorize all these verses of Scripture, and he can quote you every verse on lying, and then, and then right when he leaves your, your, your presence, uh, lie to their parent. You know, they can quote you all the right doctrine, but not manifest the right practice. Don't be the extremist who dwells on the first half of Ephesians where everything's all about doctrine and the second half with applications on gifting and teaching on family and spiritual warfare. Mark it down. Doctrine without practice will lead us to dead orthodoxy. It gives correctness of thought without practical vitality of life in Christ. And practice without doctrine leads to aberration. It gives you an intensity of feeling, but feeling is apt to go off in any and off in the wrong directions. So the apostle appeals to us and implores that we walk worthy of our calling. Now, I'd already mentioned that word walk. It's is a, is a, not only frequent in the, in the epistle to the Ephesians, but it's It's quite frequent in the New Testament, and it's just talking about our daily conduct. Paul uses it eight times in Ephesians alone. Remember back in chapter 2 and verse number 2? Actually, verse 1 is where he said, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked. And what was our walk before Christ? He says, You were walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And so in contrast to our former walk as unbelievers, we have to have a new walk to match our new life in Christ. A believer's lifestyle is to be markedly different from the Gentiles, from unbelievers, and their former selves before Christ graciously transformed us. It is to be in tune with our calling, he says here in this verse, of the calling with which you've been called. The, the King James renders this your vocation, but I think calling's a, a better term to, to use. Vocation has a contemporary idea of something we choose, but calling is biblical terminology of who chose us, and uh, the emphasis here on what God has done, not what we have done. We're talking about the sovereign call to salvation as always in the epistles. God has set His hand upon and called us. He's changed us from what we were into what we now are and are becoming in progressive sanctification. And I guess we ought to ask the question. I, I failed to welcome visitors. I haven't seen, uh, I think there was one or two this morning, but uh, there, there could be even those that are, are with us week after week who are not part of this called out family. And so you must consider, are you part of this called out family? Two parts in particular that we could uh, uh, contemplate here. Number one, that he's, he's called us out of darkness into his wonderful light, as Peter writes, 1 Peter 2.9. That has to do with spiritual sight and knowledge since we were blind and without God. And, uh, you know, it, some of you can recall in your testimony, before life in Christ, if you were in church, you sang the same hymns that you do today, but they didn't have that spectacular meaning. They were just words on a page. 
And you can also attest that the same Christ that you heard about was not precious to you then, but now He is precious. And so as you contemplate, if you're part of this calling, the one who's been called out into His family, have your eyes been opened to see things differently? And this calling is not only out of darkness, out of blindness, but it's unto life, Ephesians 2.4. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, the God who has awakened us to new life, has empowered us to live that life. It is God working in us. In the first chapter, you might recall, as we were looking at the redemptive plan, the Trinitarian redemptive plan of God, we were told in uh, verse 11 about the divine energy of God that works. So when God planned to redeem sinners, He actually brings about that plan. It's not just something that might come true, but is assured to come true because God put it in place, and it is God's working it together to redeem sinners. And then last week, as we looked at Paul's prayer, this this power is in the inner man, Ephesians 3.16. Because we're alive, we can obey Paul's urging. When he beseeches us, implores us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you are called, that calling comes with the ability to do what God has called us to be and to do. So to kind of summarize all these these thoughts, remember the blessings of uh, believers that he expanded upon in, in the doctrinal section? Election, redemption, sealing, being made alive, being reconciled, not only to God, but also to those who had formerly been your enemies, Jew and Gentile together, having freedom of access to the throne of grace only leads to a life of gratitude. Abounding in good works is in order. In reality, when Paul says this, speaking for God Himself, if you are believers and wish to be known as believers, live like believers. Live like it. Be who you are. Make sure that spiritual equilibrium is, uh, is acting. You're acting as children of God. That's your position. It needs to be your practice. That's His request. Number two is the issue of character. As it's worked out in, in, in unity, verses, verses 2 and 3. Okay, so we understand that uh, we're to walk our daily lives, commensurate with our calling in Christ. And then he gets real specific on characteristics. He starts with five essential characteristics to body life. Without them, we're going to fail to be the unified body that brings glory to the head, Christ Himself. This is not an exhaustive list, but a broad characterization of the new disposition and behavior. Qualities believers should should uh, reveal in their lives specific characteristics of the worthy life. That because God has, God's calling isn't a private relationship, it's got uh, uh, corporate manifestations. These qualities embrace, uh, we'd, we'd embrace in life together. Notice the first one he mentions here, with all humility. Again, the King James renders this lowliness. If humility has been called the first essential of the Christian life, we might 
well say that it's also the second and third essential of the Christian life. All the Christian graces come through the gateway of humility and teachability. It is the opposite of pride and self-assertion. That's why we put it on the bulletin front this morning to, to consider how am I living out humility in the body? How is it demonstrated in my life? Where am I falling lacking so I can bring that area of my life into this equilibrium that Paul requests with my standing? You know, this, this character of humility is the first on the list of attitudes to be in, the Christ, in kingdom kids' lives. When Jesus writes in the Beatitudes, it's the very first one, humility. Jesus puts it first. One, one commentator uh, says it this way, Jesus put, it, put this beatitude first because humility is the foundation of all other graces, a basic element on becoming a Christian. Pride is no part in Christ's kingdom, and until a person surrenders pride, he cannot enter the kingdom. The door into his kingdom is low, and no one who stands tall will ever go through it. We cannot be filled until we are empty. We cannot be made worthy until we recognize our unworthiness. We cannot live until we admit we are dead. We might as well expect fruit to grow without a tree as to expect the other graces of the Christian life to grow without humility. We cannot begin the Christian life without humility, and we surely cannot live the Christian life with pride, unquote. Think about what this would have sounded like in the first century. This is a term not found in Roman or Greek vocabularies of Paul's day. It was coined by Christians to describe a quality for which there were no other words available. When we contemplate our, our standing in Christ, it is a humble standing. Back in chapter 2, we, we were told that it's by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. There's no room for grabbing ourselves by the lapels and look at me how great I am. No room for pride and arrogance. We are what we are because of the grace of God. And so the first on the list that Paul gives on bringing our worthy walk into equilibrium is this of humility. Christians are not to be proud people but dependent people. There's few things as destructive to the community of Christians as pride and arrogance. Our calling is to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than ourselves, Philippians 2, 3. And this is all the grace of Christ. You know, going back to chapter 2 again, uh, he said it's not as a result of work so that no one can boast. Our boasting is for the great one, the sovereign one, who intervened in our lives and granted us faith and repentance. There's a humility about that. But you know, this isn't an easy task, though it's one that's required. It's hard because we're easily wounded by what we consider thoughtless or unfair conduct by others, and we try to play that fairness card constantly. But we need to live consistently refusing to insist on our rights and actually putting our neighbor's interest before our own. As John the Baptist put it, that he, 
Christ Himself and others in His community must increase and we must decrease. We must learn humility. We must manifest humility. And Jesus Himself exemplified this virtue and urged His disciples. Remember what He said back in Matthew eleven twenty nine: 29? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. So let's look to the example of Jesus, beloved, the perfect embodiment of applying humility to life. Maybe we need that sign that was in the department store dressing room above the mirror. Objects in mirror may appear bigger than they actually are. We need a, a mirror that shows us less of a man than I think I am. And lowliness leads naturally to that next grace that He gives us, that of gentleness. I kept on cross-referencing the King James because I know a lot of people still bring him to church. You know, this term is translated meekness. The term proutes. Humble and gentle attitude which expresses itself in patient submissiveness to offense. We're free from malice and the desire for revenge. Contrary to what the unbelieving world would say about meekness. Meekness is not weakness. This is power under control by the power of the Spirit of God dwelling within believers. He realizes that in the sight of God, he, he has no right at all, this humble and gentle one. Except, well, maybe we've got one right we could confess to each other. The, our one right is a one-way ticket straight to hell for the wages of our sin. And if God saved us from that desperate and hopeless condition, everything else is grace poured into our lives. One of the greatest of all Old Testament examples of this gentleness is Moses. We read in Numbers 12.3 that the man Moses was very humble more than any man who was on the face of the earth. And I think it's interesting, a little uh, defining word that he puts at the beginning of this list here. Notice how he says, with all humility and gentleness. Paul adds that little adjective to see that we excel in these graces. So as we you know, we look at our church bulletin, trying to gauge our, our spiritual growth, see if, we've got, if, if the Spirit of God's done anything in our life in the last several weeks, and we're trying to say, okay, um, there's a little more recognizing and trusting in God's character. There's seeing myself as having no right to question or judge an almighty and perfect God, or being thankful for criticism or proof that the brethren bring into my life. And as you go down through this life trying to gauge uh, our, our walk, where we need to excel still more, that's what Paul addresses here. All. Talking to the highest degree. So even if you have a, a measure of humility and a measure of gentleness, are you excelling in those graces? How could you improve your game in this area? We're talking about the highest degree. It could be rendered every kind of humility and gentleness. And that's what gets us right there. Never think that you've arrived, Christian. This man also exercises number three, patience or 
you've got the old king with you, long-suffering. This was so greatly needed in the early church. Believers were, were suffering misunderstanding and harshness and cruelty from their opponents. We might have that opportunity in the not-so-distant future in our own land. But until it comes, we must learn from them. We must say, in view of the fact that God has been so long-suffering to me, instead of snuffing me out, even though His holy eyes look upon my sin, we must look more upon our own sins and the sin of our brethren that sin against us and be long-suffering. Unfortunately, one of the chief ways that we can learn this patience is how? Through suffering. James 1. I heard a story of a uh, pastor, you know, somebody from the congregation came to talk to their pastor, and it's like, you know, that, that message just obliterated me. I need to grow in, in patience. And uh, so right then, the pastor started praying with his, his parishioners, saying, oh, God, would you just pouring tribulation into this dear brother's life, and, and he stops his pastor right there and says, what are you doing? It's like, well, this is the only way to patience, according to Scripture. There must be an abundance of, of difficulty and trials in life that we must be humbled by and learn how to be long-suffering. If our God is so long-suffering poured into our lives, how much more long-suffering can we be one to another? The Apostle Paul says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, notice these two participles. Showing tolerance for one another in love and being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Showing tolerance, being forbearing. Of its 15 New Testament uses, Paul snatches 10 of those to himself. It's appropriately translated, holding yourselves back from one another. That is showing tolerance. It's like you put the own muzzle on your own mouth. You put the chain on your own neck, and you hold yourself back from this, this malice or this sense of entitlement. Showing tolerance and also enduring one another in love. Bearing with one another is how the New King James translates that. These participles, both showing tolerance and enduring one another in love, show the means how the worthy walk can be carried out, both in forbearing with one another and striving with one another in love. You know, the, the suffering aspect comes out clearly here in this next Christ-like character that we're about to look at. A specific application to uncharitable conduct toward us by other Christians. Think about it. Are you committed to enduring the wrong, to suffering the slight, to just planning on being offended by believers? Are you willing to strive with them in love to maintain unity for the glory of Christ? Just mark it down that it, if you're not in the midst of it, it's coming your way, and you need to demonstrate the way of life superior to that of the ungodly world. This, beloved, is the work of the Spirit. Not self-effort, but submitting to the sovereign spirit who's going to balance the books in the ends. Leave judgment to Him. 
And with that second participle, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, we'd add that fifth caveat to Paul's list. Diligence in unity. Diligence in unity. Unity is often spoken of as if it's something that is external and mechanical, but it is not. People think upon unity as being together in the same building, possibly for the same reason. That's not biblical unity. It is something that is internal. It is something that is organic. Remember, the church is not... When we talk about church, we say, well, I'm going to go to church today. Well, we might go to the church building to meet with the church, God's people. Church is not a building or a place, but a people placed into Christ, people placed in the body, not merely an organization, though we've got to have our our bylaws written up to appease the laws of the land. It's an organism. And we're all essential body parts, bringing our gifts for the benefit of others. In the book nook before, we've had lists of over 41 another's. What are we to be to each other in the body? As we love one another, are patient with one another, forbearing with one another. We're not talking about some ecumenical zeal. We're not talking about unity at all costs, tearing down doctrinal walls of separation so that we can just unify. But this is a unity already accomplished by the Holy Spirit. And Paul warns us here not to be guilty of tearing apart Christ's church. He's building and exercising his headship over his church, so don't compete. This unity is often destroyed. It's assaulted by false pride and sinful striving, jockeying for positions. But you'll notice how Paul writes this. It is not a unity to be established. It's already been established. Our obligation, our stewardship, is simply to maintain it. And to not maintain it is to destroy it. Thus, to attack is disobedience. And we'll be judged. Think of the scores of churches that are guilty, the leaders, the members that will be suffering loss at the bema seat of Christ, though they may be redeemed, they've been guilty of assaulting the unity that the Spirit of God has provided. We are, according to His instructions, to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace, making every effort to preserve the unity imparted by the Spirit by means of this bond consisting in peace. This is the common purpose of being a blessing to one another, so that the church can be built up in a blessing to the world, so that they can be a united front against all the hostilities around the church. Think about all of our diversities that I had uh, alluded to earlier in the message that we bring. All of our backgrounds, the various giftedness, but it's unified. There's an old proverb that says, one hand alone doesn't clap. Well, I think that's blatantly obvious to the casual observer. One hand alone doesn't clap. And so God has called us out unto His body where we are united with one doctrine, one gospel, one faith once for, once for all delivered, as Jude writes about. 
He talks about this being a bond of peace. So that when there is strife, there's disunity. Peace promotes the perpetuation of unity. So the church should strive to be a sanctuary of peace. There's enough war out there. When we're, we think about our own personal lives as the war against indwelling sin, you go to work and, and uh, live around unbelievers, there's the, there's the war there as well. There's enough strife during the week, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so when we come together on the Lord's day, we're to rejoice in that unity of the same doctrine, the same message. In order to accomplish the task assigned by the Lord, believers need to cooperate, each contributing his share to inner growth of the church. You know, if, if we're, to use that body metaphor, if you've got some that are using their giftedness, the others that are not, they're assaulting the unity of the body by not ministering it to the body as the head demands they do. Well, those first two points, Paul just writes in one sentence. On to the next sentence in, uh, in this passage, that this unity is expressed or it's illustrated in the Trinity. That's the rest of the passage. It's illustrated. It's very abrupt. There's no transitional statement, no interlude here into this, this illustration. He just names it. And so this third point, verses 4 to 6, is an illustration as exemplified in our triune God. Notice the, uh, in these merely three verses in your English translation, there's a sevenfold repetition of that word one. So this illustration stre- uh, stresses the church's unity in three groupings. It, uh, and the, in the, that first triad, notice that there, there's one body, one spirit, just as you are also called in one hope of your calling. We'd already mentioned that a body is Paul's favorite metaphor for the church as compared to kingdom or family or temple in chapter 2. Uh, in chapter 5, he talks of, uses the metaphor of the bride. I think it's uh, one, one caveat that uh, this is a metaphor never used for Old Testament Israel. It's always used for the church. Body is something that works together. Though it's composed of many diverse and intricate parts, they're working together for the one common purpose. And this concept is developed at great length in, in 1 Corinthians 12, stressing mutual interdependence on the body's parts. Remember what, what Paul says to the Corinthians, you know, the eye the can't say to the hand, I don't need you, nor can the head say the same to the feet. But he says there's, there's one body and there's also one spirit. We're one due to the working of the Spirit of God. He's calling attention to our conversions. Though there's a unique, uh, each of us can share various testimonies, nuances of the gospel as it invaded our lives, different situations and different ways God humbled us before the cross of Calvary. But at the same time, it's all the same story. If you're in Christ, we were all awakened to sin, conscious that all are not right with God. We're in violation of His laws. We're hostile to His holy character, and we're under His wrath. So, so in your testimony, you all shared those to some extent. Due to the Holy Spirit, we've got regeneration. God, in a supernatural way, placed a 
new life of Christ within our hearts so that we change. We become different than we were. There's that work of faith. We're made alive in the, by the Holy Spirit in Christ. We were, we were drawn by the same Spirit to place our faith in Jesus alone. He's even involved in that sanctification process that we talked about earlier. Produces, he produces the same fruit of the Spirit in all of us. Listed in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. You know, we think of, when you think of all of the Spirit's work in the life of the body, regardless of your background, the one Spirit has united us in a much more important common experience. One body, one Spirit, and you notice in this triad, one hope. One hope. It's a common hope. This word, I think, has suffered at the hands when we try to exegete the Bible based on our English language and we think about hope. You know, I, uh, I hope to get a job. I hope my house sells. We've got a lot of things that we don't know will take place. It's a hope-so. When the Bible uses the word hope, it's a no-so. Absolutely. Not something you wish for, but don't really expect. We're speaking of absolute assurance. We've been given the earnest of the Holy Spirit, proof that the best is yet to come. As great as it is to be redeemed when we're glorified and in His presence, it's going to be that much better. One body, one spirit, one hope. Second member of the Trinity he introduces us to is clustered around Christ. Notice how he's going in reverse order. Holy Spirit, then Christ. You, know, you hear some Christians talk, and you'd think that there are many lords. You know, when they talk about, well, the Lord led me to do this, and another person going in the opposite direction said, well, the Lord led me to do this, and you think, well, there's a lot of lords leading in different directions here. But the Lord of the church leads His obedient children by His Word, the very mind of Christ. As we are filled by the Spirit, we're being filled by the Word Think about the Jews at the diaspora that would have heard Paul, in the first case, writing this. They're accustomed to hearing the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And there's a confession of one Lord that would echo here their daily confession of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord our God is one God, one Lord. There's one true faith. One gospel joins people across all barriers of time, nationality, race, sex, and and anyone else that we can imagine. If there is one faith once for all delivered, Jude 3, we should be able to stand shoulder to shoulder before the world and give a united testimony of God's saving work of Jesus Christ. Not an ecumenical unity, which we clarified earlier, throwing out all doctrine and distinctions. But we are united to proclaim the gospel, rallying together for the common cause of reaching the world for Jesus Christ, putting aside petty differences that don't matter for eternity. By the way, it's the same message. No matter where we are or who we're speaking to, you don't need to contextualize the gospel. You know, when we go to the foreign field, people speak a different language. They've got different cultural uh, uh, issues. You don't have to contextualize. You just preach the gospel, and God will save sinners. One true faith, 
One, baptizing, uh, one baptism, not talking necessarily about modes of baptism, maybe he's got in mind both the rite and uh, what it symbolizes, but it's, he's speaking of identity with Christ here. Have you been publicly identified with Jesus Christ? If so, before the world, we're, we're identified together with Him and must stand together for Him. So there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, even if they differ in their modes, right? And then the third triad he's got here, the, the third member of the Trinity, verse 6, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, I mentioned usually we talk about the Father, the the Son and the Spirit, but Paul chose to do it in reverse order. Paul's kind of building up in, in crescendo a, a climax in the Trinity, the Father. And he uses three pep- prepositions to show the overall thrust of God's power and presence over His entire creation, that all of this flows from one God who is over all and through all and in all. And as Father, He is over all. He exercises control over all. He is the absolute sovereign. If we think about uh, it in terms of those prepositions that he uses, that he is over, through, and in, he's the transcendent sovereign over all his creation and especially all believers' lives. He works through believers, his Imminence is demonstrated through the instrument of believers. His invisible attributes are visibly manifested through His people. And God is in all. He's in all believers, signifying His intimate presence. So the Trinity illustrates for them and us the unity expected to be demonstrated by believers who have been placed in the body. John Stott, talking about the Trinity as the basis for church unity, sums it up like this. He says, there can be only one Christian family, only one Christian faith, hope, and baptism, and only one Christian body, because there's only one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can no more multiply churches than you can multiply gods. Is there only one God? Then He has only one church. Is the unity of God inviolable? then so is the unity of the church. It is no more possible to split the church than it is possible to split the Godhead. Newton, sometimes we get this myopic view that uh, the entirety of God's kingdom resides at Newtown Bible Church. And we know it doesn't, but we must remember Newtown Bible Church is just a local expression of the one body of Christ. I wish there were time to talk of some of the implications and ramifications of this very theology for church planting and for church polity and for missions and for body life together. But time evades us. Often Scripture attributes election to the Father, redemption to the Son, and sanctification to the Spirit. Yet in each they're cooperating. And so we got this grand illustration, this crescendo in the Trinity, that He's over all, in all, and through all. Of all things, whatever you say about the church, it's God's church. 
It's composed of God's people. It's the result of God's work, and it exists for God's glory. So let that be our vision, dear saints. If you don't, you're going to find it difficult to keep or to maintain visible the unity that God Himself has established. He's already worked it into the very fiber of our experience together in Christ's body. So be diligent to maintain it. That worthy walk is a humble walk. It is gentle. It is patient. It's bearing with one another. And it's united in the bond of peace. I saw this attitude demonstrated this week. I had a great uh, meeting this week with some of our biblical counselors that, uh, that I meet with every month. And as we were observing a counseling situation that Jim Neuh- Dr. Neuheiser did for IBCD, as he's counseling a guy at wor- uh, who at work was treated unfairly. First of all, he should have listened to Ted Bigelow's message on the, uh, message, series on the life of Joseph because he's our poster child of being treated unfairly. But as Dr. Neuheiser was counseling this, this dear brother in Christ about the injustices when you, when you have your own sales account stolen from you by coworkers, and the way Jim was seeking to illustrate this was more of a mission mindset. And Jim said, you know, God has, has freed me through the gospel and privileged me to show my wife mercy when she wrongs me. You know, before Christ, you'd be ready, ready to put up the dukes, but through the, the power of the Spirit and the gospel, you've been freed to show Christ's mercy to His flock and your family. Let that be our, our mentality. Would you pray with me? Father, there's so much that we like to say as we're going through Ephesians, so many more, more truths found here, so many more implications of this precious doctrine that you've been unpacking week after week. But God, we leave it to your Spirit to work it into our lives as we meditate on these truths, that if we're quick to get angry, we need to work on patience. God, if we have a tendency to be proud and arrogant and egocentric and boastful, that we'd work on humility. And where we're insensitive and bullish at times, where we run roughshod over people, where we're bossy and quick to impose on others, would you teach us the gentleness of Christ? And if we struggle in areas of being intolerant with the shortcomings of our fellow believers, cause us to be bearing with one another in love. And in any ways that unity in our own church is not a priority, would it make it a priority of our lives? Dismiss us through their blessing and work these gospel truths and these graces into our lives that our walk might better represent our position in Christ. We trust you to do that in the name of Jesus. Amen.